0: Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. That's where we'll start together this morning. The 19th chapter of Exodus. Most of you were in the Bible class hour when I made a few remarks by way of introduction. So for the sake of those who were not in the room at that time, let me again say how much I really appreciate being with you all this morning thankful the elders inviting me to come back and be with you i think it's my third time to be here speak in a gospel meeting effort and it just always is a joy for me to come to columbia to college view usually i'm by myself but this time my wife and two of my children are with me today and i'm glad for them to be here um, again i appreciate greg and cindy Gwynn and the work they've done over the years and we also are really glad to see the Coleman family again. You're blessed to have this good family. I remember the day they came to West Knoxville and identified with the church when I was preaching there. And it was just a true delight to have them uh, and their five children at the time. We had all of them at home at that time. Uh, but it's good to see Jack and Cindy and uh, two of theirs still today. The uh, topic this week, as it's been announced to you is, is what makes the Church of Christ different. And when I, yeah, the door is not down. Uh, when I saw that, uh, that theme that uh, Greg emailed to me, I began to think, well, uh, this can go one of two ways. And I thought, no, it goes both ways. We are different from other religious folk out across the landscape of America. But even among the Lord's body, there would be some differences. Sadly, I wish that were not so, but it, but it is. And the subject matter of the, of the Bible class hour is one in which there's differences. Some churches will not practice church discipline. And um, other areas where that would be seen as well. The topic for this uh, lesson is the identity of the one true church. And maybe those who are visiting this morning, uh, maybe you've never heard that expressed that way before. Is there just one true church? And some might even find that somewhat offensive to make such a claim. And so this idea of, of being only one, uh, somewhat of an exclusive claim, uh, you know, in, in today's culture that doesn't draw a lot of support, generally speaking. Uh, exclusiveness or a claim to exclusiveness usually invites some sort of rebuke or some sort of a negative response, or even ridicule. It's not politically or socially expedient to make this claim of, of being exclusive in one area or another. As a general rule, Americans like, uh, we like our options and our freedom to choose, because after all, one's choice is as good as another. And so you choose yours, and I'll choose mine, and, and we'll go on down the road together happy that way. We don't like our choices being made for us. Having only one of something seems rather rigid, doesn't it? And narrow-minded. And I'm just speaking in general terms. I'm not at all saying that our topic, that it's, it's a rigid, narrow-minded, uh, unwelcome choice. That would not be my point at all. I believe the Bible teaches that God has always dealt with His people in an exclusive way. And I'm not making apologies for that. Now, I want to start off with two passages. First is in Exodus 19. And we know by this time, Moses has brought Israel, just redeemed from bondage, down to Mount Sinai. And he brought them there, I believe, for a specified reason. Back in, I believe it was chapter 13 and verse 17, I believe is the reference. When they left Egypt, the Bible says that he did not lead them by way of the Red Sea, lest they see the Philistines and become discouraged because of war. They were not yet ready to fight. So it would have been one thing, if you picture the Bible map in your mind, to lead them sort of away from the Red Sea coast and away from Philistia. But he brought them clear down south to the point of the Sinai Peninsula. Why go that far? Well, I'm convinced it was not just to avoid the Philistines and that war machine. It was to speak to them in terms of establishing the covenant. In these words in Exodus 19, the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and the rest of the law that was given there by Moses indicate that is what God had in mind. But listen now to these, to these verses. Let's um, start in verse 4 of Exodus 19. This is God speaking to Israel through Moses. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's a reference, of course, to the plagues. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. See, it's quite true to say that every single human is the child of God. That's a correct statement. Because every single human is made in God's image. We bear the stamp and the likeness of our Creator. But that's not what he's talking about here in verse 5. When he says, You'll be to me, if, if... The conditional language is unmistakably clear. If you obey my voice, if you keep my covenant, my commandments, if you do what I command you, then you'll be my own special people. See, all the earth is mine. Every nation is mine. But in that group of humanity, that mass of humans... You will stand out as my exclusive people by means of a covenant. And that cannot be said of all peoples, only God's people. So there's there is truth this idea of, of being exclusively belonging to the Lord. And then in Colossians chapter or I'm sorry, first Peter two, pardon me, first Peter chapter two, Peter uh, by inspiration quotes this passage in Exodus nineteen and uh, applies it to New Testament saints today. 1 Peter 2, let's start in verse 4. And see if in this passage you don't come away with the idea of an exclusive standing of God's people before this exclusive God. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. Coming to Him as to a living stone, of course, speaking of Christ, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Now, quoting Isaiah 28, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be put to shame or be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve or who are disobedient, now quoting Uh, The 118th Psalm, Peter says, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Now, verse 9, listen carefully. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See how Peter uses that quotation from Exodus 19 and says to saints today who make up this spiritual house, Jesus himself being the head of the corner, the chief cornerstone. You're now my people you were once not a people at all you were just you were nobody in sense of being in a relationship with god but now you are the people of god you're his people see exclusiveness so this idea of, of is there only one is there a, is there an existence of a, of an exclusive group of people that naturally brings into my mind this thinking of being different from everybody else we don't claim to be better than anybody else God knows that. We don't claim to have any certain standing, per se, in that, in that uh, we're at the front of the line of all the other people out here in terms of our humanity. We're not. But what we do claim is this. We know what it means to be forgiven. Because we've been forgiven so much. And we claim, at least I think we do, and we try to back that up with our behavior. We try, As Greg said earlier, we try to be the church... ...that you read about in the pages of the New Testament. There's a pattern there for us. And that pattern is the identity of the Lord's body. And we want to be part of that body. So that's the idea behind this lesson this morning. So is there only one body of believers that is acceptable to the Lord? Or are there just myriads of choices out there? Like a buffet line you can go by. Well, I want some of this and some of that. Or uh, maybe co-mingle some together and create your own. That's happened in the past historically. What's the what's the right approach? I would contend there's one there's one body, one true church, and we'll show it hopefully in three different points this morning. Number one, the one true body is the only place where Christ adds converts, the only place. Acts chapter two, when the church had its beginning, had its origin, and the gospel was first preached, as had been prophesied from Jerusalem. And as the Lord Himself had commanded before uh, His ascension, that the apostles were not to leave Jerusalem until they were in due or received power from on high, not many days uh, after He was uh, taken up from the earth. And in Acts 2, and uh, you'll see the uh, Holy Spirit is poured out upon the apostles to the first few verses. Then they began speaking in tongues to that, to that great uh, assembly of Jews gathered from every nation under heaven. They had different dialects, different ways to speak, so the apostles could speak in all these languages where the audience could hear them preach the gospel. They were accused of being drunk. I'm just summarizing the passage to get to our point of, of entry in the text. Then Peter makes the defense, no, we're not drunk only the third hour of the day. But this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And he quotes Joel chapter 2, the outpouring or the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the, upon the apostles. So then, after all that has taken place, Peter begins actually preaching in verse 22. That's where his sermon begins. And you can read about how he preaches Christ crucified and resurrected. He he, uh, quotes uh, the um, um, there in verse uh, 25, the 16th Psalm, about his resurrection from from the dead. And he uh, makes further points all the way down through verse 36, the conclusion of the sermon. Those who were listening, verse 37, they were convicted of their sin. They said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent, be baptized. For the remission of your sins, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 41. So then, those who had received his word, Peter's preaching, were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. The first converse to Christ. 3,000 obeyed the gospel. Keep reading through the text. Get down to the very last verse of the chapter, verse 47. And the Lord was adding to the church daily or day by day, those who were being saved. I believe this is the first mention of the term church post the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. And it's happened here in Acts chapter 2. And what's going on? The Lord's adding them to the church. Remember the Lord's own promise, Matthew 16. They were in Caesarea Philippi. And the Lord asked the question of His disciples, "Uh, Who do men say that I am? No, what's, what's the talk out there? And they said, well, some say you're uh, uh, John, some say you're Elijah, one of the other prophets. And the Lord said, well, to the, to the twelve, now, well, who do you say that I am? What's your opinion on this? And as his case was, Peter always the first to speak up. And he got it right. He didn't say, well, I'm still in the dark about this, I'm still moaning over in my mind, but this is what I think. No, he said confidently, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's no doubt in my mind about that. The Lord said, "Blessed are you, Simon. You got the answer right. You didn't get this from men. You got it from God. And upon this rock, I will build my church." The Lord promised that. Not the rock of Peter, as our Catholic friends will say. He wasn't at that moment. He wasn't uh, exalting Peter to the to the position of, of pope. That's not what's going on. The rock-solid truth of this confession that he was the Christ. On that on that truth, on that reality I will build my church. And now it's happened here in Acts 2. So different churches here back in Acts 2, different churches were not established on that day for all these groups that were divided by their tongues or by their languages. If there ever would have been a time to subdivide men based upon their their uh, place of of residence or upon their 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 tongue or their ethnicity, this has been the time to do it. Just naturally speaking, you know, put all the all the knees together, put all the Parthians together, put all the Cappadocians together. Well, that's they 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 can speak each other's language. No, they were all added to the one body by the gospel of Christ by their obedience to the gospel of Christ. The fact that they were baptized. To have their sins remitted. So, why would the Lord add newly baptized believers to different religious groups? He wouldn't do that. He didn't do that. So, first and foremost, there is one body in that. That's the only place. We read of in the Scripture where the Lord adds converts to the gospel. One body. One one church. Secondly, this is the only way to preserve unity. Now, our brother read for us. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. And this is a verse that I've selected to use to make this point. Ephesians chapter four. Sometimes you hear this called well, it's "the Unity Chapter" of the Bible. The Bible doesn't call it the Unity Chapter, but we call it the Unity Chapter of the Bible for obvious reasons. We won't reread the the text, but just make these points. This is a powerful list of unique, exclusive things. These these things mentioned. The greater context, and I would encourage you to look at this if you've not already done so, verses 1 through 16, look at the points that Paul makes about the edifying of the body, that which every joint supplies, every part does its share. The body edifies itself, it grows up into its head. All done in the manner of love, down through verse 16. No longer be children tossed to and fro, but we're grounded, we're steadfast in our discipleship. But these these characteristics, starting in verse 4 of Ephesians 4, there's one body, one spirit, as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. Let me just quickly go through these terms to reaffirm in our own minds what's involved with each of them. See, these are unifying certainties that can and should Unify all men together in one body, in, in one place. There's one God. Let us say there's one Father, or one, one Creator, one owner of the universe. He says there's one Father, one head of the family. There's one Lord. Let us say there's one Master, one authority figure, just one. There's one Spirit. That means there's one revealer of divine truth as His role is there's one faith that means there's one body of truth one body of teaching of revealed truth there's one there's there's one uh, one one body one collective group of disciples one group of saved individuals saved believers there's one hope one hope of heaven and one baptism just one method of entry into the kingdom now of all these what, what I'm what I'm describing as these these unifying certainties, each one of these has no equal alternative or has no substitution. They are what they are. They are exclusive in and of themselves. And they have a, a certain part to play, if you will, in the divine scheme of man's redemption. If there's more than one body, then there's more than one God. If not, why not? If there's more than one body, then there's more than one hope of heaven. Let's go search for this other hope that's out there somewhere. If there's more than one body, more than one church, and there's more than one Lord, for which one died on the cross? Because he had to find, no. None of that makes any sense. There's one of each of these, and Paul argues there is one body, and so this fact that there's only only one way to preserve unity, to bring about that which unifies and unites. All men, of all ages, of all time, strongly argues for the existence of just one church, one, one body. The one the Lord promised to build and, in fact, did establish, as we read from Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. So there's our, our second point. And our third point is there's only uh, one body in that it's the only body the head possesses. Now, staying in Ephesians, go back to chapter 1 now. And let's look at the last two verses of Ephesians 1. Speaking of Christ, how He... Uh, look at, say, verse uh, 20. He brought about these things in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all uh, rule and principality or authority, power and dominion, and every name in His name, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, verse 22. He... The Father, God, put all things in subjection under His, Christ, under His feet, and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Hold your place here for a moment and turn to the Colossian letter. Colossians and Ephesians sound a lot alike. They were written about the same time, I believe carried by the same... Uh, messengers, Colossians 1, and just one verse, verse 18. This speaks about, about Christ starting in verse 15. These attributes or these characteristics of Christ. He's before all things, verse 17. And in Him all things hold together or consist, verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. So, uh, we've established the fact, just two simple passages, two simple verses, that the Christ is the head of the body. Now, if, uh, if there's just one head and one body, then all other arrangements appear to me to be false, or may I even use the word unnatural. And I have just a real simple way to illustrate this. Uh, if I if I had to make my living at drawing or being an artist I'd starve to death. I I can't draw. I can't even draw a good stick man. But I can draw a perfect stick man on a computer. <laughs> so that's what I've done this morning. My stick man on the computer are perfect. As you'll see just in a moment. All right. Let's let's illustrate it this way. Now here's here's the body. But let's let's put two heads on that body. Now how how how's that going to work? We got two competing heads, two competing authority figures, and say the head on this side wants to take the body this way. And the other says, "No, we need to go that way." Now, the body's gonna get ripped in half. So that's that, that's not going to work. Well, I've I've chosen this diagram for a reason. See, that's that's unnatural, and that that actually depicts Catholicism in a way. Now, I'm not I'm not trying to poke fun at our Catholic friends. We're just looking at this. Doctrinally, the Pope styles himself and the church styles the Pope as the vicar of Christ. He's the representative of Christ on the earth. And he is called the head of the church, the Roman Catholic Church. So here's a body that's got two heads. Uh, Well, Christ is our head, but so is the pontiff, so is the Pope. So this man that sits in Rome today, that calls himself the Pope, he has assumed the office, he has assumed the position as head of the church. I'll tell you, he does that to his own eternal doom. Because he doesn't have any authority to do that. That's not a natural setup. We can see how that won't work. All right, here's another description or another depiction. Now, here's a head and here's one body. And that looks, that looks pretty good, doesn't it? One head and one body. But what if we put other bodies on this head? We just keep going around in circles. We just add all kinds of bodies. Is that going to work? That won't work either. Because if you have this, this this head will then direct this body to go a certain way, but he might direct the other body to go another way. How can a head give conflicting commands or directions? See, that's not natural either. Well, there's a reason why I've chosen this depiction as well, in that this correctly depicts mainstream denominationalism. We have churches here in this town, in this city, you have churches that may even be... On the same, at the same intersection of a, of a highway, across the road from one another, and they teach diametrically opposed doctrines on one point or another. But they would both claim, well, Christ is our head, yes. It can't work that way, friends, and you see that. The head will not direct one body this way, another body that way. That's not natural either. That's unnatural. Well, I'm left now with my only other alternative, and that's that. See, it's, that's, that's perfect. One head, one body. That's the only way it will naturally work. The head directs the body, just like your head directs your body. You can't wave your arm, scratch your ear, do anything, unless your head tells your body to do those bodily functions. That's the way it works also with the Lord's body. He is the head. He directs the body. God gave him to be head over the church, which is his body, Ephesians 1 tells us. Echoed in Colossians chapter 1 as well. So, that's the New Testament church. That's the church we want to be a part of. That's the church you read about in the pages of your New Testament. That's our pattern. So, is there just one body? We would affirm there is, yes. And the Lord's the head of it. And He directs its every move, gives its every command. Now, I'm not going to make this a great lesson on denominationalism. I don't think that's the way we ought to go. But just a real quick statement or two about this, I think, would would serve to further illustrate this point. The history of denominationalism shows why various churches were begun in the first place. The Catholic Church again. There were uh, four or five apostate churches. Jerusalem, Alexandria, Antioch, uh, Constantinople, and Rome. And they had heads. They had head bishops. And then they eventually got together and said, well, we're going to pick one. And so Boniface III in the year 606, was the first man to claim he was the universal bishop, the head of that church. So some begin churches out of a quest for power or for authority or for rule. Others begin churches out of, a, out of a disgust, they see, for ongoing religious practices. Martin Luther was a Catholic priest, but he saw all kinds of rampant sin and unacceptable practices in the Catholic Church. And so he left. And what eventually came out of that was what we know today as the Lutheran Church, which was began in 1530. Others leave what they are religiously and start a church for personal reasons. We've all heard of King Henry VIII. Well, he was married. He was a Catholic. He wanted to divorce his wife, and the Pope said, You can't do that. So he left the church and started the Church of England in the year 1534. And then others start churches because they disagree over certain practices. John Smith was a clergyman in the Church of England. And he didn't agree with a lot of things, one of which was infant baptism. It's not really baptism, it's sprinkling water over an infant's head. And he didn't agree with that. He believed in immersion. So he left the Church of England and started what is now known as the Baptist Church, and it's got several different groups off of that. That was begun in the year 1607. And see, on and on we could go. But our, our, our point, I believe, is made, none of these things that we've looked at at this point are unifying to all men, are they? None of them. They are naturally divisive. Have you ever been asked the question, are you a Christian? Yes. Well, what, what kind are you? Where you go? See, that just, that begs the point that it's already being divided on what side of the fence we stand. What kind of, well, I'm just a New Testament Christian. That's how I answer that. I just want to be a New Testament kind of Christian when you read about it in the pages of the scripture. No, God planned His one church, and He said over it one head, and He began it shortly after His son's death, and burial, and resurrection. Why? To unify all men of all ages for all time. Because do all men have the same need? Yes, indeed they do. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all men need the redemptive saving blood of His Son to save them from their sins. And going back to Acts 2, if we obey the gospel, He'll add us to His one church. The only place that we read about in the scripture. So let me conclude this lesson this morning. There's three of the points I want to make from scripture that hopefully reinforce what I've, what I've said. Please consider these points I think are crucial to this study. Turn to John 17. Let's look at what I call the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer that he prayed in the garden shortly before his arrest and his crucifixion. John 17. We're going to start at verse 13. At this point of his prayer, down through verse 12, he's prayed about himself. And now starting at verse 13, I believe he's praying for his disciples, the the hand-picked, what we call the apostles. Verse 13 of John 17. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, that is, to disciples. And the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now stopping there, that's his prayer for the disciples, the apostles. I've set them apart. You gave them to me. And I've used the word that you've given me to set them apart for this great task. Now, starting at verse 20, he prays for all believers of all ages, I believe. Starting in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these, these disciples alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, through their work, that they may all be one. See, he prayed for unity. What if we take the apostles' doctrine, we take the apostles' teaching and it's taught and we hear it, What results from that? i point you back to Acts 2 again. Peter preached the gospel for the first time. Three thousand obeyed it, rendered obedience to it. They agreed with it, and they were baptized. And what happened? The Lord added them to this body that He promised to build, and He did build starting on that day. So we see the Lord prayed for unity, desired that of all nations. Secondly, back to Ephesians, this time chapter 2. I believe the Scripture tells us that there is one body in that, in it, is removed all barriers to unity. And to me, this is a strong passage. Because at Ephesus, in fact, in not just Ephesus, but most New Testament cities, there were Jewish Christians and there were Gentile Christians. And if just left to themselves, they would not naturally go together. They had many differences ethnically, religiously. But in Christ, they were all brought together. And listen to the way Paul argues here in Ephesians 2. Let's start reading in verse 11. And he begins by addressing the Gentile saints who were members of that local church. Let's read, excuse me, let's read through the, through the uh, end of the chapter. Ephesians 2, verse 11. <coughs> Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let me stop right there. You know who that also describes? Us. I'm not a Jew. Are you a Jew? I'm a Gentile. And that, I'm in the same boat they were in. Or I wasn't the same boat they were in. Had no hope. I was outside those original covenant promises and so were you. Verse 13 now. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were afar off have been made nigh or brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Now watch carefully, verse 16. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have, I'm sorry, for through him we both have access in one spirit to to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You see that? Especially verse 16. We're unified in one body. So whatever you are before you become a Christian doesn't matter. You're, wherever your ethnic origins are, whatever you speak, your gender, your race, none of that makes any difference. You can be unified with all other believers of all ages in the one body because of what the Lord did. Ephesians 2 tells us that. It's a strong, strong, powerful passage. And thirdly, in Galatians chapter 3, what about those those uh, ancient promises? Remember those Abrahamic promises? In Genesis chapter 12, Get up from thee and thy kindred in the land of the Ur of the Chaldees, God told Abraham, or Abram, and I'll make of thee a great nation. Give thee a land. But it's that third promise in verse 3. And in thee, And in thy seed shall all families or all nations of the earth be blessed. That's the gospel of Christ. That's the promise of the salvation in the seed of the Messiah. In Galatians three, listen to Paul as he wraps this up. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For you are all for all of you who were baptized into Christ have put on or clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, if you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That promise back there, that all nations will be blessed in the seed of Christ. See, these important truths, these three points, these cannot happen in a sectarian world divided by men's religious ideas. There's, There's no unity there. We are naturally divided. But if we adopt the idea that there's one body built by the Lord, He is the head over it, and all men can come into it and be united in Christ, then these three points and others make perfect sense, and they help us be what we need to be, not only for our own benefit, but to serve God. So it only happened in one place. The true church planned, as I began, by this exclusive God seeking an exclusive people. His people by covenant today, the New Testament Church of Christ. Yes, there is just one body. And we can be members of it. And I'll say this in closing. Believing this, defending this, and even proclaiming this will certainly make us different from all other religious people. But hopefully through God's providence, it might open a door of to study with them, and it will also make us God's people. Because we'll be doing what the Lord wants us to do, to have our sins uh, remitted in our souls. So you've been a very good audience this morning. I appreciate your attention and your, your uh, uh, following along with the lesson. So all this begs the question now, are you a member of this body? Are you a Christian? Have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Has the Lord added you to His body? If the answer to all those things is no, you can correct that this hour. We'll be happy to take your confession this morning will baptize you into Christ to have all your sins remitted, washed away. And then the Lord will add you to the church. And you'll be a Christian. A simple Christian. Ready to serve Him in this body. And have as as your head this Christ. Are you a Christian, but you've erred? Have you gone astray? Are you showing now inclinations to go a separate way? We hope and pray that's not your, your your situation, but the Lord knows your needs this morning. So can we help you in any way with your spiritual needs, whether you're an alien sinner or you're an erring Christian? Please come when we sing our hymn to invite you this morning.